So this is just our second look at Planescape Torment. It's a real different feel from the first uh, part of the game, though. Um, you come out, and I think, Ben, you said you came out through the portal as well, right? I came through Instead the of door. the front doors. Yeah, I walked you did through the You did go through the door. Yep. Oh, okay. Do you get a a little cutscene then as you come out that sort of shows you yes. sigil? Okay. Yep. That one that one is no matter which way you get out, you, you get to see the cutscene. Well yeah, and it looks like they're sort of just right next door. They end up being um you know that's what I was noticing about these portals is they at least for now they are limited in their like the distance that they actually move you mm-hmm. seems like um not that they're you know c- correctly obeying physical laws per se but but they're not like teleporting you at an insane distance either well we do um, get that conversation with one of the people running around in sigil like in that first northeast area i think it's the northeast um, the one woman who apparently accidentally came to Sigil, like, accidentally teleported herself as a little girl, and then tried to find her way home, and has apparently gone into some portals that have taken her to some pretty dangerous places, like, planes uh... of fire and stuff, and her skin is all burned, and, you know, she's very unhealthy, uh, both mentally and physically, and she is looking for she refuses to go through any door because it could potentially be another portal and she's already made that mistake too many times um <laughs> so as much as you know the the portals we've been running into so far are pretty tame and are in fact only moving us a short distance it's obvious that the rules aren't necessarily consistent here like they're there are portals that will transport you not just to, you know, next door, but to an entirely different plane, to entirely different worlds. And this is apparently something that can happen at the drop of a hat. Like, any passageway, uh-huh. any door could serve as a door to someplace far away if you have the right key, if you have the right sort of combination yeah. or whatever... Like, she says that, you know, there are some keys and it's like a, a finger gesture or, you know, a, you think the same thought three times. Like, it could be anything, and that's the danger. Sometimes you accidentally walk through a portal and end up something, someplace very, very bad. Um, but, but yeah, it's it doesn't have to be just a local jump. No, yeah. It's, it seems like the, uh, the belief system sort of reinforces this too, right? Like we were talking about last time, the idea of um, escape from life and how the dustmen see that. Um, But the the interesting there is like the randomness that these portals uh, seem to (laughs) uh, obey. Like you don't know where you're going when you're escaping. Or uh, in her case, right, she's not even intentionally away from somewhere she's just sort of lost um so that's that was something that was striking me about it too right so on the one hand the portals can take you um any distance and in this case you're really short um but on the other hand they can take you any like possible 
whole realm, right? So I was confused, I guess, about that. Um, the one that I found so far, uh, besides getting out of the mortuary, is the one that involves the junk uh, and oh, takes okay. you to a uh, like an underground warren of some kind. And uh, it looks like you're on the same screen. Like you go into the portal and you pop out just like little ways further over um, almost like you just kind of walk through a little tunnel uh, I, I'm assuming that we will get much uh, more grandiose ones before too long yeah one of the um, portals that I went through on uh, this hour or so's worth of play um, I hung around in the, the gathering dust bar where the dusties like yeah. to hang out and I got a mission from like Nuego, I think, uh, where he wanted me to clear out this mausoleum, and he gave me the key to go through a portal on the sort of north side of town where it's just this empty passageway that you otherwise can't walk through, um, but he gives you the code or the, the password. I forget exactly what it is. It's another one of those things where it's like you just have to feel something or think it to yourself, and ta-da, it opens up, and now you're in this mausoleum that is infested with, like, skeletons shambling around threatening you and apparently this necromancer is stirring up trouble so yeah there's oh. already quite a bit that you can get to here um but yeah that, that's why not that's why when i gave our instructions for this week i was like just wander around the hive get into trouble make some friends make some enemies <laughs> you know like there's a lot to do here and i'm kind of not at all surprised that we had different experiences in our first round of Requests. Yeah. Uh, Mike, it sounds like you're out of work and uh, moving some furniture, maybe? I'm not sure. Moving uh, fire. I, it sounds very dragon. <laughs> it's, it's the wind. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going to be uh, in and out because I, I still have to drive home, but I just wanted to listen and possibly chime in sort of uh, along the way. Okay, very good. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I got assigned a few side quests, but I don't think I accomplished any of them yet. <laughs> uh, I did not get that one with the, the key to the Necromancer's hangout. I, I got something from the midwife. Oh, okay. Uh, she wanted me to go and deliver a seed to somebody. And I think the seed bit me when I took it from her. I'm not sure. Um, I'm assuming that she will teach me some healing spells of some kind if I do this. But like I said, I haven't done it yet. Yeah, the other quest that I very much bumped into was... Like, I was... Rather than sort of wandering around Hive into all the various areas, I ended up sort of staying home at home base, like around the, the mortuary, like just the northeast section which has plenty to do all by itself. Um, and I did wander into poor Angyar's home, and apparently Angyar has just sold his his body agreement. So he, he's going to, like... He, he sold his corpse to the Dusties, and they'll reanimate him and make him do whatever they want him to do when he dies. Um, and Angyar's wife is very concerned because he's apparently really apprehensive and upset about this so you actually have she dispatches you to 
retrieve the contracts so you can tear it up and, and free him from his bondage. That was the other quest that I, I primarily focused on here. Um, but yeah, I also just picked up quests left and right. Like, you know, I, I've got conflicting information about where Farad's whereabouts are, and I've got a couple of people who want me to help them out, like the poor lady who won't go through doors. Um, but those were the two that I both started and finished, since both of them could actually be done without leaving the northeast uh, section of the hive. Um, but yes, there's like four quarters to the hive in addition to Ragpicker Square and the Alley of Dangerous Angles, and, you know, I'm getting jumped by thugs every five minutes. Like, there's a lot happening here. Yeah, so that's what struck me on first coming out into this city is, you know, the view that we get of it, uh, we see that it's sort of very vertical, mm -hmm. if I'm interpreting the geometry correctly in that little cutscene. Um, the, you know, the city itself is kind of nearby, and there's some good architecture, but then there's some kind of giant, I, I don't know, like hill or cliff beyond that that just sort of goes off up into the darkness. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to really get your bearings, too, because you're constantly getting attacked. Like, the first people that I tried to talk to just pulled a knife on me and chased me away. Uh, I didn't... I mean, I don't know if that's possible to avoid, like, or if you're just forced to fight the uh, uh, the cutters. Like they, That's what they call you, too, I guess, so... You must look threatening enough that they just attack you on sight. That or they um, want your stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's... But Cutter, Cutter is actually um, uh, sigil slang. I don't think it, it, it's... no. There's no necessary connection between like that and like somebody with a knife. Okay. Yeah, there is an awful lot of the language that we get here too. Uh, the other one I noticed is jink for money. Yep. Right, um, and a lot of people that you talk to, you can a for you know information and politeness, I guess. Mm. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it's clear. I mean, it's clear that you're not in your element here, also, uh, which I found kind of interesting. Um, you're uh, sort of an easy mark uh, for a lot of these people. Um, at least a couple thieves that I ran into that like you you can observe how they try to pick your pocket uh, I don't know if that's right in the first area or not but um, yeah I think that's in the next area uh, okay but I, I remember that from my first playthrough yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot that you can learn here too like that's one of the things that I was struck by is that you know there's a lot of experience just sort of lying around in, in various places, lots of things that you can pick up to improve both you and Mort, for that matter. Like, um, one of the things that I did was I talked to one of the many ladies of the night that were wandering around yeah. or, you know, tucked in around the bar, um, and apparently she and Mort got into a bit of an insult match. Um, like, Mort, of course, being the lascivious skull that he is, offers to give this lady a... a good time and like you get the dialogue option of making some snide remark about her being dangerous for him and giving him the pox 
and immediately she just launches into this litany of curses and Mort responds and he learns new taunts apparently so um <laughs> so yeah like there's a lot of unexpected ways to improve both you and Mort and you know remember things there were quite a few times that like I would trigger a memory or something um vague and, and disconnected as they were um but that's, you know, again, the sort of sprawling richness of this place. Like, there is a lot of unexpected, you know, secrets and, you know, unexpected opportunities just everywhere. Everywhere. Um, like, even uh, the one poor guy standing outside of the mortuary, the, the guy with the rash, um, mm. like, he's, he is like Farad. He, you know, collects uh, bodies so he can sell them to the dusters. Um, and if you are charismatic enough, uh, you can disguise yourself as a dead body and convincingly, and he'll take you back into the mortuary and make some money off of the deposit and you get back into the mortuary and nobody has to die <laughs> in this process. Interesting. Uh, but you also get a bunch of experience for the, for the transaction. So, you know, you just get that much stronger as a consequence. Like there's just so much to do, so many things that you could potentially... <laughs> used to, to benefit yourself i i really enjoyed the zombie that was being used as like a, a, yeah. a poster like yeah, like the there was a whole bunch of like public, yeah the public notices like hung on on him mm-hmm. and and there's yeah no there's just there's like a lot of like little things that it's like this, this is I, I mean and even that that only conveys or that I could tell like a fairly small amount of useful information, but a lot of it is just like establishing the feel of the hive and sigil. Yeah. So, both how cheap like a corpse goes for around here. Like you can literally use one as though it's like a telephone pole where people are stapling their notices and you, you know, you get stuff like the public works notice or, you know, the badly misspelled, like information from some bureaucratic office inviting you to like help keep down the rat population or something like um right not to mention the the fact that he's got the cobblestone lodged in his skull so obviously like people aren't treating him well like they they throw stuff at him like it's got it very much lends itself to this sort of urban chaos um this kind of you know total disrespect for these things that it's so mundane that nobody would think twice about you know like stapling their notices or graffitiing this body um, that is supposedly (laughs) being used to to do advertising and stuff but at the same time like you can ask him questions and be like where is ferrod and he'll point and he'll show you um it's it's just yeah mike that's a really great detail a really great sort of world building element um subtle well i thought deep i thought it was kind of cool too that he is a lot like you in that way right you're you're the nameless one is uh covered in scars mm-hmm. and clearly has seen better days and has like you know tattooed information onto himself essentially yes. to um to try to find his way uh so you guys are kind of kindred spirits in this funny way um yeah i, I love the post and that's right outside of the bar, right? And the bar is itself just like chock full stuff going on. Um, there's the dust person who 
has doubts about yep. the faith now. Zero the skeptic. Skeptic, right, right. Yep. And, um, I guess that that's supposed to sort of, you know, along with Dahl and the um, Ivane character, like kind of humanize these uh, sort of faceless figures to an extent. You can kind of talk her through those doubts. Um, and I guess you can either try to reassure her or you can reinforce her like open-mindedness and an ability to think critically about stuff. Uh, I don't know if you get experience either way, but I think that I ended up trying to tell her that her doubts were legit, you know, and, and to go ahead with that. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure you'll get 500 experience from talking to her no matter what you counsel her. Because um, I was very much mm. of the opinion that, like, my, my response to her was that she should that she should wait. You know, doubts can subside. N not counseling her either to just disregard them or sort of, you know, lean into them, but rather just to sit mm. with them and see if her opinion changes. Um, but I think there's you can get more experience... Uh, if you talk to her as part of the the Dustman faction quests, um, like if you join uh, the Dustman, um, the one the one guy with the the zombie bodyguards in the um, in the Gathering Dust bar is a representative of the Dustman faction, and you can join the Dustman and be assigned missions uh, by this guy. And one of them is to just talk to Seer the Skeptic. Uh, but interestingly. It isn't to talk her into throwing away her doubts. Um, he just wants you to talk to her, get a definite answer one way or the other, and he will give you, you know, the the experience for completing the quest, no matter what you ultimately tell her. Um, which I also think is kind of striking that the Dustmen, as as much as they are, you know, kind of dogmatic in their approach, and and you, we. You know, there are multiple Dustman characters that you talk to, and they're, they're in various sort of positions about this whole true death subject. Um, as much as they are kind of dogmatic in their way, they also don't seem to be tyrannical. Like, there, there's not a convince her to rejoin us or kill her. Like, that's not the way that this is presented. Um, you know, you, you just have to get her to the next stage, whatever that looks like, whether she's going to leave or not. Um, and I also think there's a way to get her to join up with a different faction if, in fact, you counseled her out of the Dustmen. Oh. But that's down the road a bit. Yeah, it's hard for me to tell how deep these conversations can go. It's like, you can get in sort of a loop with them, but if you just follow just the right path, they seem to go on and on and on uh, linearly. Yeah, and clearly you can revisit these later in the game, so... Yeah, that's part of the reason why I went for such a charismatic, heavy build. Um, like, I I think I've got 17 charisma, the maximum that, that I could have chosen from the outset, because I wanted to open up those dialogue options, um, which is not a guarantee. Sometimes the best options come if, because of other skills, like if you have a lot of wisdom or if you have a lot of intelligence. Um, like, one of the things that I could do right after leaving the mortuary is I talked to one of those guys who's, like, hammering the city, the Dabus, they 
float and they have like the little symbols. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um my intelligence was high enough that I could talk to them and sort of decipher the rebus puzzles that they were broadcasting and learn their language. Um, right. which gave me a big experience boost and the whole thing and it was you know, I got to talk to them about the, the Lady of Pain who apparently has like the face framed with blades like you know, it, it's that's very much what I wanted to go for in this game. So yes, I went to the the mausoleum and got my butt kicked by skeletons because my strength is pathetic. But you know, at least I get all of the dialogue options. Um, <laughs> right. Well, that's what I was going to po- point out when you mentioned, you know, people not having much reverence uh, for anything going. On. Pe- people definitely fear the Lady of Pain. Yes. Uh, that's the exception. <laughs> um, she seems to be above the factions, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, but is, is she the same as what we see on like the logo for the game? Is that the Lady of Pain? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, okay. Like I think that if all goes well, we will get our opportunity to meet her at some point. Um, but it has been a while, so I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, you you want to be very careful if you find yourself in that kind of encounter. Will she just gobble you up? I mean, what are we talking about here? Um, So one of the, I mean, it's it it depends because there's different ways to sort of like draw her attention or offend her. Um, Like one of them is attacking the Dabus, um, and also she really hates being worshipped. but, like, the first thing that she'll do is she'll put you in this maze that will try to kill you, which you can get your way out of. But if you keep doing that, it will get worse. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so it's like an evil game master, almost, right? <laughs> like, uh, or whatever, you, dungeon master, DM, yeah. Yeah. I, I just find the... This is going to sound like a dumb thing to say, but... I find the portrayal of women in this game very interesting. <laughs> uh, we talked a little bit about it last time, right? Like the uh, the sort of love interest, and then the ghost who's in love with you, and now we've got this lady of pain, uh, and of course all the harlots. And at least one of them's got a name, right? And she's got like a real kind of fiery personality and. Yeah, the girl uh, with the tail. Talks to more. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, that's the right. That's the one. Yeah, and so we get a lot, of, uh, and the midwife. Mm-hmm. So we do get like a diversity of female characters, but in some way they're all they're othered or yeah. threatening towards you or um, yeah, just uh, it, it seems like an interesting sort of thing to, to watch out for maybe just as we go through the game yeah they, they do um, seem to kind of fall into archetypes which there's a wide variety of archetypes on display but they don't necessarily transcend that archetypal quality at least not at this point um but i'm pretty sure at least a couple of the ladies that we've run into um i think even the girl with the tail will join up at one point um, and at which point we'll probably get a, a better, a better appreciation for what depth there is to be had here. Um, 
Like, we'll see more of the archetype at the very least. Uh, well, yeah, and I guess I'm curious about the whole idea of joining up and uh, the way that the factions seem to operate. The The only ones I've heard described, I guess, are the Dustmen and some kind of chaos crew that, like, runs around and causes trouble. Anarchists. Um, oh, they're, yeah. And, but then there is the rag pickers, the collectors, are they considered a faction, or are they just sort of, like, small fry in this world? Um, I know that Farad, like, everybody seems to know who he is, so it's kind of hard to call him small fry, but at the same time, I don't think they're quite as organized. Like, there's no leadership there so much. Um, like, obviously anyone can be a collector if they're bringing bodies to the dustmen. It seems more like, you know, a sort of down-on-your-luck kind of profession, which can, as these things often do, become more organized the more money's in it. Um, but yeah, I, I hesitate to see that as, like, a separate faction. I could be wrong. Like, for all I know, you're gonna meet Farad and he's gonna be like, here, join my faction, here are some quests, like... There are certainly official factions that will give you quests that sort of give you progress through the ranks, but I'm not sure that's one of them. Okay. Yeah, as, as far as, as just sort of the official sort of uh, tabletop factions, the collectors aren't, but I, I guess certainly the game, I, I don't know, it could be different as far as being able to join up with them, but they're sort of not on the quote official list. Okay. Yeah, and is that factor in somehow to your like progress um the way that your character uh gets stronger does it change depending on what faction you end up joining or, or kind of what what effect does that have in terms of the mechanics yeah i know um as you would expect the faction quest will give you experience and probably other rewards of various sorts um you know money uh, swag, stuff like that. Um, I know that there is a way to change your class, um, but I think that has more to do with your party members than with the actual faction. Like, you're, the Nameless One, his default class as he, you know, shows up in the Mortuary is Fighter, which is like the classic D&D &D combat class. Like, you fight, you are fairly strong you you know beat things up with various weapons you have proficiency in, with various weapons um and that's basically a fighter like you add some feats and some other stuff depending on which version of DD we're talking about and you call it a day um but i'm pretty sure that once you get a couple of people to join your team or once you fulfill other conditions um, you can be either a mage of some kind, like a wizard who learns spells and can cast them and, and you know, do damage in a variety of ways. Um, you can be a thief, thus allowing you to, like, bust in a locked things and sneak around stealthily and not be noticed. Um, and I'm pretty sure you can also be a priest. Um, but I don't remember how that goes, because I don't think I ever successfully did that the first time I played through. Um, but then you can actually switch from class to class uh, in the game. Like, you talk to the right person and they'll, they'll just flip-flop you. Which is not something you can do in the original tabletop. Like, you cannot just decide to be a new class magically out of nowhere and then just completely respect yourself. Um, 
but it is a convenient choice mechanically insofar as, you know, you, you can perform a wide variety of roles and solve a wide variety of problems and not be locked out based on the decisions you've made earlier in the game. Um, and it also lends something to the Nameless One's character, namely that, you know, you are unlocking your abilities as you unlock your memories. You you recognize that in past lives you were able to do different things, had researched different skills. Um, you were not a level 1 character. You were a level 20 character with like three levels in every single class. It's just a matter of remembering that stuff. Um, which I think is interesting. Yeah, no, just this is a as a note, particularly for the second edition of the game, that this is a significantly streamlined way of moving between classes. Yes. Um, it is yeah, it's 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 pretty ugly in, in second edition tabletop. Yeah, the fact that we only need to like choose one or two statistic places and you know, if that is kind of yeah, like, even in more contemporary editions of D&D that do deliberately, like, streamline the, the level-up process, this is very simplistic, uh, very much hand-holding. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I went to, I transferred to the Thief class, and I'm probably going to go back to Fighter. Because I realized that the route I'm going, I'm not going to want to use a ton of Thief skills. Well, as we get more characters to join up, I think they will also neatly fill in some of the gaps. Um, like, I am the worst fighter. I, I have all my points in charisma and wisdom and dexterity and intelligence and nothing in strength or constitution. So, you know, like, I get into fights and I'm like, Ha-ha! Behold the power of my axe! Swish, 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 oops. Um, like... So, yeah, I, I will very much look forward to, to switching to a magic class or something else. But, um, but yeah, it also very much depends on who you've got in the party. Like, Mort is kind of ideally suited for your first character because his whole shtick is he's, like, impossible to hit with all these, you know, weak characters. Um, and he taunts people, so he very much, like, draws all of their attention and gives you time to wail on them. Um, while himself just avoiding and evading every attack that they throw at him. Um, so, like, even in the mausoleum, I got in the habit of just kind of sending Mort out first and getting all the guys to attack him and then showing up with my axe or my pry bar or whatever and, you know, beating them up one by one, preferably without getting their attention focused on the Nameless One, because then they would very much beat him into a pulp very quickly. Um... But yeah, Mort, Mort is unusual in that sense, that he gets to be the tank in a backwards sort of way. One of one of my favorite things was meeting Ingress. Oh, okay. Um, and I actually um, I, I, I've I don't know, I certainly don't think I found everything, but I'm kind of moved past the hive, so I've been to all four sections. Um, but I, I really liked her quest because the idea is that she accidentally found her way to sigil um because the portals can be can be really anywhere any sort of any sort of space that through which there's sort of like an archway and they can be triggered by all sorts of incredibly random or specific causes and she's gained this sort of terror of archways and she like can't 
leave where she's trapped because she has fallen through portals and been harmed and attacked and all these things. And I thought, I thought that was great because it sort of, first off, I mean, it tells you a little bit about the sort of rules of the sort of cosmology of Sigil, right. but it also, I think, gave this, like, sense of, of sort of, like, the potential of, you know, again, of this, this, like, this city in the middle of the universe, and there's sort of infinite places you could possibly go or things that could wander in, um, and some of them aren't terribly pleasant. So I thought that was, an, like, a really good way of sort of talking about the city, because you can learn about Sigil from a lot of different people. Like, there are a lot of people who will give you the basic spiel, but yeah and i but i think her that that way was a great was was sort of the most um impactful that i came across so i I really enjoyed her quest yeah it's it's neat for a number of reasons like it does give you that that sort of lore perspective but it also sort of introduces the mechanics because there are so many portals and doors that you'll open up over the course of the game and now it's got a context for it um, yeah, like, as much as she's difficult to track down, because she is kind of constantly sprinting around the northeast portion of the hive, you know, refusing to go into any door, um, I, I think it's a very rich, like, it, per experience. And the fact that she is sprinting actually draws your attention to her as a consequence. Like, you, you're curious. You want to see what her deal is. Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely agree. She's very much a, a cool dimension there, a cool addition. Yeah, I, I I was a little disappointed because the the gentleman that I found I don't, I don't want to, get to try to give away anything in particular, but who sort of helped me sort of complete that quest was also uh, a big sort of lore dump gentleman, and he walks you through um, all of the outer planes. Right. Um, and everything in that description is kind of like you know it's that's the the D and D canon. But it was it it was a little uh, a bit of a letdown for me because I liked the presentation prior to that where it's kind of like things are mysterious you don't necessarily know and there's kind of sort of infinite possibility whereas this kind of guy kind of sits you down and says here's here's what they are I'm going to describe each of them to you um, and you know and and that doesn't necessarily take away the sense of mystery and awe for these kind of like worlds. Um, particularly if we end up going to any of them, but I, I I prefer when it was kind of like the realms are boundless and you're not necessarily going to know what each of them are yeah. uh, rather than going through a list. So that was, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that's nothing new. Like that's sort of the official line for the game, but right. I kind of enjoyed when, it, when, it, the, when Torment was keeping a little bit more ambiguous. Just letting it be up to your imagination to fill it out, rather than sort of relying so heavily on the D and D lore. Um, I, I think I right. think part of the what is striking about that is that it very much has to do with the perspective of the two characters. Like, you know, on the one hand, there you've got Ingress, who is very much a victim of this system, who has no idea how all of this stuff works, um, who is just sort of you know caught in this horrible situation this like real terror um of just the cosmic senselessness of it all and for her it is this infinite boundless thing but then you talk to you know this very capable very intelligent mage who has you know walked all the planes and you know is is drawing power from from these various sources and he's like oh yeah let me all explain it to you it's kind of like 
it's kind of like the difference between studying the physics of Aristotle and the, you know, the motion of the spheres according to Galileo. Like, given a little bit more information, given a little bit more perspective, it, it's this new insight. So as much as, you know, I agree that I kind of like Ingress's perspective better, where the world is just this wild, crazy, you know, unpredictable place, you know, at the same time, I like the, the sort of, the dual perspectives, the, the way that the game kind of makes this about the characters, um, even more than it's about the world. Like, you only ever see the world through the through these perspectives, through the various characters who give you this information. Yeah, and then actually, the, the, the fact that you say that actually makes me think of the that split also reflects a little bit of the sort of player dungeon master split, because... For for and this was this was common in second edition, um, but including for Planescape, the idea was you bought sort of a box and like there are multiple things that are sort of packaged in the box, and one of them is the player's guide to the planes, and the other is the dungeon master's guide to the planes, and the player's guide was substantially thinner. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, so the idea is that the players, you know, and the characters they're inhabiting. Um, even if they were, if if they decided to play like a, a native of Sigil, are going to have a lot less information available to them um, than the dungeon master who has sort of the god's eye view. Um, so when you say that, that actually I thought of that like right away, like the sort of the, div, the that sort of uh, compartmentalization of information for different people playing the game in different ways. Yeah, and I think that that's honestly something that D and D these days has kind of lost. Um, like the asymmetrical design once upon a time where the DM had just, you know, a wealth of information at their disposal and was literally creating, like carving out of this lore the boundaries of the experience that you were going to have, knowing full well that there was, you know, more behind the veil, um, but then inviting you to sort of participate and f familiarize yourself with this world little bit by little bit, piece by piece, level by level. Um, you know, nowadays, with all of the wikis and with all of the user-made content, like, you know, you get players who come to the game with their entire career mapped out, level 1 to level 20. Like, this is exactly what I'm planning to do, and the DM is just, you know, providing me an excuse to, to do it. Um, whereas, you know, the the ignorance once upon a time the fact that a player would go in blind and have literally no idea what was ahead of them you know i think that i think that that's gotten lost and is a bit disappointing as a consequence like obviously it varies from person to person but and you know more than i right well no but i i think you're absolutely right and part of that is again just going back to the format of the books because now it is um typically when they want to introduce a new subject or a new setting they'll release a book and that's kind of the book and there's no sense of like, you know, like, you know, the, the, the convention of, um, the, the DM buys all the books and then sort of shares with the players. Um, I don't know that that's ever necessarily been widespread, but that was kind of the working assumption. Whereas now it's kind of like, well, the player might pick up this book for the subclass information or for the new spells but it also has all of the setting lore right there. So there's no sense of like in convention, this sort of suggesting that the the players aren't going to peek behind the curtain. Um, so you're right. And there's definitely, I mean, of course, because 
of the sort of easier to access information. You don't even necessarily ha need to purchase the book to have a lot of the stuff available to you. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think, and I have um, sometimes had a little frustration with, it because, you know, everybody has their different, what they want out of this game. Um, and, I will be somewhat a little frustrated because players will bring that knowledge into their characters, not just sort of their knowledge, but the play, the character will also know. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of the, the line between what players know and what characters know is always an interesting dynamic. But for me, it's a little bit like, I don't know that they would necessarily have this much knowledge just sort of living their lives. Um, and, you know, and, and, and people can play what they want, but that, but that definitely is to me is emblematic of this way that, um, it's become a little bit more um, domesticated. I mean, I thought that the the kind of, like I said, the the language of this place did a good job of putting me off of my, I, I don't know, off balance. Um, but I, I guess if I knew more about these from uh, lore books or whatever it might be, um, maybe I would come in sort of expecting that a little bit more. So that that was sort of the part that was most impressive to me about this whole thing. Because uh, I, well, I haven't explored enough to know just how big it is. Right. Um, but most of the the depth of this place seems to be in the conversations with the characters, so far at least. Yes. So. And I've got to say, you know, like, as much as... I think we here at Video Game Academy are actually kind of in a weird spot as far as that's concerned. Like, the first time that I played this game, I was very much in your boat. Like, I had, in fact, played Dungeons & Dragons before, um, but I only ever got up to, like, level 6. So I, you know, I had not seen the veil peeled away. Like, I had no idea about all this, the mechanics of the planes and the idea of Sigil linking them, partially because I was playing 3rd edition and some of that had actually changed um, but also just because, you know, D&D, &D, at least at the time, was designed to sort of unfold the game as you as you go. Um, like, a level one character isn't supposed to be familiar with the cosmic orientation of the universe. Like, that's something that you discover as you become more powerful, as you become more capable of traversing um, the planes, the, the various sort of cosmic entities bumping into gods and having conversations with dragons. Like, when you're level one, you know, you're struggling to fight goblins. So, you know, obviously you don't appreciate that. So on the one hand, you know, I, I kind of want to... I want us to appreciate the game as you are, Wes. Like, as, as a neophyte sort of watching this world unfold around us. But at the same time, I am really keen to talk about, like, the mechanics and the sort of, you know, commercialization and politics of D&D &D and how the game has changed the way that Mike and I are frequently talking about it. So, you know, I, I don't want to discourage either perspective. Um, but, and it's a delicate balance. Like, on the one hand, yes, let's, let's keep our... our eyes closed and, and walk through this and see what the game reveals to us bit by bit. Um, but on the other hand, yes, let's let's talk about what this means in the greater context and what has changed and, you know, how this game has evolved um, and why, for that matter. Well, yeah, no, don't, don't hold back on my account. Like, it's really interesting to hear about the way that the dynamics of the tabletop 
um, sort of are evoked in different ways or um, yeah, come through in the video game version. And I, I think that's always a really interesting question to ask about video games is sort of like, what do they allow that previous kinds of games might not have, you know, or, or just analog existence <laughs> doesn't yeah. permit, you know? Um, and the biggest, you know, the biggest thing I always come back to is sort of the imaginative is what, what you sacrifice mm-hmm. when you play a video game. You, you don't do as much on that side of things because it does a lot of it for you. Um, but in games that rely so much on text, um, it does kind of reactivate that for you a bit. Uh, and so it's maybe not quite as interpersonally rich, you know, because you're not sitting at the table with people. Um, but there is still some of that, 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 that some vestige of that that's here. Um, and sort of the intrigue that goes along with that as you're discovering the world. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's a very cool... I think they strike a pretty good balance with it, so far anyway. Yes. Uh. And, and I think Planescape Torment especially, like, the reason why this one is the one that jumped out at me and not so much, you know, Baldur's Gate or the, the more traditional D&D-ish experiences, like, I think one of the things that, you know... When you play D&D in person with a dungeon master, with someone who's like literally responding to you, you know, on a human level as you go, adapting the world and everything that's going around it to your choices, um, yes, by moving to a video game, you necessarily sacrifice a lot of that freedom, a lot of that sort of cooperative creativity. Um, But I think Planescape Torment's solution to that problem is just fascinating, that there is... You know, just this huge variety of characters, and they all behave in these very, you know, complicated and uh, unpredictable ways. Um, like, where the player agency is kind of cut down, um, like, you obviously can't just, you know, walk up to people and say anything you want to them. Um, at the same time, you know, there are surprising rewards to be had for poking around into the the strange hollows of their conversation, asking questions that might not seem entirely, um, like, easy to intuit. Um, And, you know, there's rewards for that, and and playing around with the dialogue tree, and the fact that there are, like, a dozen dialogue options in half the conversations you get into. You know, as much as freedom is restricted, um, it does a surprising amount of work to restore that and and keep the the creativity the the unpredictability of this of this game flowing um like that's it's always astonished me about this game and it's a really interesting mechanical translation i think <laughs> uh yeah no in in Dun- the original dungeons and dragons if you're going to lie you're you're just going to say whatever it is like be in character um, but I think that's also such a really interesting dimension because you'll have, you know, you'll have these really weird situations in the game where the nameless one will have a couple of options and it'll be like, you know, you lie and tell them you'll be back or you will vow and tell them to be back. Like, it's a really interesting, interesting detail that like you can say the exact same thing. But because the game emphasizes the motivation, are you lying or are you telling the truth? It means something radically different. Like again, there's just there's a surprising richness to that. Now, that so that's part part of what I found yeah interesting about that. But the other thing I, I guess is like I have such a hard time telling which characters are going to be 
important. Mm -hmm. Because they each have so much going on, um, they all seem like they are potentially uh, you know, someone you might need for the long haul. You know, and so you, yeah. uh, I just, and whether that's true or not, I, I guess we'll see. But. I have to think that's intentional as well. Like, in, you know, in all of those MMORPGs and stuff, like the quest givers are marked with like the exclamation point above their head. And it's like, yeah, that's how you progress the game. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it's very easy to sort of uh, like optimize your time, specifically go and ignore all the characters that aren't going to help you. Um, but in Planescape Torment, you know, they're camouflaged. Like, you don't know if Ingress is the one who's going to progress your quest, or if it's going to be Seer the Skeptic, or if it's going to be, you know, one of the Dabus. Like, you have no idea. Um, and the game is literally going out of its way to make sure that you don't. Um, it wants you to talk to everyone. It wants you to poke around the dialogue options and see what comes up. Like, yes, they give you the, the name of the person you need to talk about, talk to, Farad, and you can ask almost anyone what is going on with Farad and get, you know, in some cases conflicting information, in some cases, you know, some pretty good advice. So if you do, in fact, want to just, like, bypass all the side quests and, and just proceed with the main quest, you know what to do, roughly. But insofar as, you know, you don't know which person could solve your side quest problem, yeah, it's buried. Guess you better talk to everyone. Guess you better see as much of this game as you possibly can. Um, I, I think that's very clever on their part. I definitely, I definitely agree. Um... In, in the broad scope, because you certainly, yeah, it's really, you don't necessarily know the role that a lot of people are going to play, but I, I will know that they do give the, give it away a little bit, um, because they'll put, um, party members in a s separate section of your journal once you meet them, and they also tend to have voice lines, so you can kind of tell who's a potential recruit, um, which is obviously far from the only relevance that characters have, but that I noticed cause, because I talked to a gentleman in the um, one of the bars, and he had a voice line right away, and I was like, hmm. That's important. Perhaps, perhaps he will join my, my quest. I, I like your, your term gentleman in this case. <laughs> a gentle is not hey, the way you, I would usually describe him. <laughs> you, you know what? Gifts, gifts Soraya people too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. So, and that's, I and that's, pick up on that. That's good. And that's, and that's one other thing that, that actually reminds me that I wanted to note that I thought was, was great is that, you know, obviously there are a lot of um, <clears throat> human beings in Sigil, but there are not a lot of i mean there are there are a couple examples but there are not a lot of the sort of quote standard or most um familiar fantasy races um like you don't meet a lot of elves you don't meet a lot of dwarves um you know orcs or trolls things like that but you do meet like the 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 their eye um i don't i don't know what the there's like a it's they're kind of like centaurs or they're like quadrupeds i don't know that they're just centaurs um and then you meet like fiends so it's kind of like it's establishing that sort of like other creatures and other races but going pretty exotic with it right away like it's not 
you'll you'll meet it you'll meet an elf that lives in the forest it's like no you meet a a gets who um has a completely different language and has or in philosophy um and history which i so I, I like that that was another way of sort of establishing sort of the exotic foreign nature of uh sigil I ran into the black dragon at some point and was too scared. Uh, That's but I, sh- I, <laughs> uh, I don't think I've seen the centaur type guys yet. Uh, yeah. Oh, so for next time, we're finding Farad. Yeah, I'd say let's keep wandering around Sigil. Um, I'm not gonna, you know. Um, like demand that we find Farad at the very least like again I haven't even been out of the northeast section at this point I do intend to <laughs> definitely at the very least go into the southeast section uh, go to the smoldering corpse bar and talk to folks there um, like I, I've kind of been been working at it you know about an hour or two at a time so I'd say finish exploring the hive um, okay. That's kind of what fair. I would suggest. You know, find Farad, or at least you know get on the right track to finding Farad. Um, but also, just again, bum around, do some side quests, see who you bump into, see what factions are trying are recruiting these days. Like, see if you get anybody to join your party. Um, you know, bumping into things randomly and and getting into conversations with people is like eighty percent of what's going on here. So I am very hesitant to put us on a track before it before it's appropriate. Um, the game okay. will pick us up in fair in a certain amount of time. We just it's okay to wander around until then. Nice. All right, that sounds good to me. Um, yeah, I'm impressed as ever uh, how many different takes this game kind of offers players. Uh, pretty cool. I mean, uh, not not as open as you know the true. D&D experience, maybe, but a pretty good uh, simulation mm-hmm. for, for my money. For my jink. <laughs> Alright, y'all. Uh, I'm going to sign off here. Thanks again. Very good. Good evening, everyone. Alright, have a good night, y'all. Enjoy.